podcast guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Hello, fortunate seeker. And welcome to a very special episode of Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. Because today we happen to have a very special guest. Uh, hello, I'm, uh, I go by Erratic Errata on the internet. So uh, you might have heard of me or read a thing or two that I wrote. I, I imagine that everybody listening might have yeah and that that's awesome thank you so much for being here we really appreciate your time uh and we're really looking forward to this oh, it's my pleasure to be here it, i mean it's uh without getting too narcissistic it's i i always talking i always enjoy talking about uh, practical guys at evil <laughs> i mean it's a great thing to talk about we do yeah. too so <laughs> and speaking of practical guide to evil it's been oh oh my it's been a year or two since it finished I've uh, lost track. I think a little over a year by now. Goodness, I, uh, time flies. To be honest, I'm not great with keeping track of months, either in real life or in books. Uh, so um, <laughs> it gets uh, kind of nebulous, especially since I gave myself quite a bit of time off uh, after finishing the series. Well-deserved, well, yeah, if you well ask us. For sure. But even though Practical Guide has finished up, the guide is also newly again in its infancy or perhaps just passing out of it the first book has wrapped up in its re-release and now that book the only one we've fully covered on the podcast or even covered in any great part has two versions two very similar very different iterations people can check out and this isn't something that traditional publishing and most of the writing world has had to deal with for the past century or so things were weird before yeah. before uh, the honest, war really honestly probably even more a little more recent than that like web novels are a relatively recent phenomenon even if there were obviously mm -hmm. uh, uh written uh forebears let's call it that way by people who used to write in newspaper and that sort of thing absolutely um, serialized fiction yeah, but uh, this kind of stuff only became uh, possible on the internet when you had platforms like WordPress popping up where you could legitimately host a book instead of a web page in eye searing colors. <laughs> Which is one of our greater critiques of the yeah. website, practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com, for those who have forgotten. Yeah. But despite that one, I would say glaring failing, but it's the opposite of glaring, that one readable and pleasant failing <laughs> it still means you have two versions of the story on two platforms one more recent and therefore at the very least perceived as perhaps more authoritative one more easily accessed right. uh i'll i can say it straight out the yonder version is not what i would consider the final version because to get it paper published i'm going to have to revise the text anyways because uh what Yonder does is I basically I take my old chapter and they have a character limit in how many uh, words they can put in the page, more or less, if you go too big. I've, anyways, I've had to ask permissions for chapters that were too large. So then my chapters, which are sometimes ridiculously large, have to be chopped into smaller ones. But in a final uh, published in paper version of the text, obviously I wouldn't keep those same separations. Some I might, but uh, most likely I would be reuniting the chapters and massaging the text a bit. Which sounds like a whole lot of work, actually. Of course, a whole lot of work. All writing is a whole lot of work. But particularly considering the transition, we've marveled many times in the past 40 weeks or so, the past 36 chapters we've covered, at how well adapted to the serialized web format your online chapters are. They always end or press not always end on a cliffhanger but they often end on a cliffhanger consistently end on an upward stroke of thematic motion they 
leave you wanting more. And that doesn't have to be the goal in a print novel. People will just read more. It's the next page. Maybe yeah. the same page if you have it badly formatted. Uh, I'd say going for the cliffhanger tends to be um, a web novel disease, so to speak. But it's even in... Uh, I'd say the text is not necessarily lesser for it. It's just a writing habit, as you will have uh, suspense books, uh, thrillers, who will essentially do the same thing, only allowing themselves a little more room. But uh, I'd say the the big problem with this uh, serial is, uh, sure, you want to keep the, the cliffhanger, but uh, you don't want to put too many of them in a row because the loser is going to lose focus, especially if it's several weeks in a go where you're just dropping cliffhanger after cliffhanger. And there's always the, the general problem of chapter creep, which I've yet to see a, a web novel not fall prey to to some extent. This chapter creep being the steady expansion of the chapters? Yeah, I mean, I try not to think too much about how long the older books ended up being. Uh, uh, the, the later books, rather. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's easy to get into the mindset with web novels that you think uh, week per week instead of as a bigger whole. And I benefited in that. I'd laid the big bones of the story uh, years ahead before I ever started writing the guide. But there are sections of the books uh, that I look back at now. And I'm really glad that uh, the Yonder version is a thing because I can go back and hack and slash through a lot of stuff that I feel might have been ended up being unnecessary. With that, so if you know, you, you've got parts that you think maybe were unnecessary that you want to approach... Are there things outside of just for purely formatting or pacing reason, reasons that you maybe would like to get rid of just to keep a mystery around certain things? You, you give us a lot of perspectives on different characters and the interludes. Um, there are a lot of things that are sort of revealed piecemeal throughout this incredibly long work. Are there things that showed up as you were writing because of this serialized format that you later wished you had kept quiet or kept quiet longer within the, within the story? Um, basically all the big strokes that you would consider a major plot twist in the series were nearly all universally decided in advance, so those I pretty much released when I felt they should be released. So in that sense, there's not a lot I can regret. Um, are there small details that I would have kept quiet? Um... Not really. I'd say in the in the more final version, the big issue is that um, extra chapters aren't necessarily going to fit very well in something closer to a book version. So I'm going to find to have to find a way to integrate that in the text without, you know, just all right. Let's stop this book, and for three chapters, you're going to hear about uh, the Grey Pilgrim's past. It worked for Victor Hugo, <laughs> <laughs> though even Tolkien did have to. I was going to say publish another book on that, but no, Tolkien had to have a collection of papers and then die with them and have them published, Oops. if I understand the origin of the Silmarillion correctly. Uh, roughly speaking. Okay, good. But that might not be the way to approach this. Uh, probably not. Uh, I mean, sometimes the information in the extra chapters isn't necessarily uh, necess really necessary to understand the text, but there's a couple of things that, uh, if you know them, they really color the understanding of the story from that point forward, and those I'm definitely going to have to slide in one way or another. I remember the order I was able to encounter things. I recall, uh, of course, on this podcast, we do take the long view and the long price, and so spoilers are as commonplace as can be, so I feel no shame in noting that in the penultimate, anti-penultimate chapter, when the dead king is finally vanquished, there was a moment with a little songbird that seemed colorful and cool. It felt good. But then later I got to read the dead king's chapter because I was at that time fully unemployed and not a patron. And it made it so much richer, even though I read it afterwards. I can't wait to see how you choose to include all the little pieces. I mean, for a certain aspect, it's uh, it's really a question of bringing in, bringing in the world building earlier. Like, there's a lot of stuff that I ended up doing for uh, Price in the book seven that should have done been done much earlier in the series, considering uh, how important a part of the setting it is. And I did end up doing a lot of that work in. Uh, 
well, I call them volume one and volume two now because it was getting a headache uh, with talking about my editor in which book one are we talking about? Which book two are we talking about? So nowadays I use a book for the original version and volume for the, the yonder version. Oh, okay. Makes sense. That's so, fantastic. Yeah. So uh, volume one and uh, volume two did a lot of the heavy lifting uh, uh, basically what happened with the Yonder version is uh, what used to be the first book I cut into and expanded both parts. And the second part is set uh, in Price. And there I got to do a lot of the world building that I ended up having to do much later in the series. And uh, since I'm allowing myself, uh, Volume 3 basically is going to be entirely new text. It's going to be a smaller, tighter book that's set in between uh, what was uh, originally Book 1 and Book 2. Um, and that once again uh, lets me do world building and uh, lets me connect uh, lets me connect uh, greater concepts of the setting that I didn't necessarily when I started out writing the series understand thematically how important they might be. I mean that's always the advantage of going back to your work years after, especially when you have a, a finished version, however. Uh, rough it might be is you get to see like yeah this should be mentioned much earlier considering how important it ended up being and you get to go through and revise that you're in a very cool position of being able to take a story deeply beloved by many many people's favorite work of literature and continue to iterate on and improve it but it is all out there or at least so many pieces of it are out there. We have the original web serial. We have the Yonder version. You want the traditional paper book. And that's great. And I feel we benefit greatly from it. But that's so much. Would you yeah. want to... I guess you're writing Pale Lights online right now. But mm -hmm. would you recommend this sort of public drafting process? So drafting feels like something of an ungenerous word considering yep. the WordPress version is still a very complete series, even if it's getting completer or tighter or better, different, so many comparative adjectives. Um, uh, the thing about that question, like in an absolute sense, do I recommend making your first draft public and then trying and putting it out on the internet where you know people can grab at it and everything no on the other hand uh, i look back at where i was uh, the the first book of the guide was my first serious work, uh, work as a writer i had written short stories before small stuff fanfic that kind of thing um but nothing that i would that sought to be professional writing and by the time i had the first book of the guide finished uh if I had sat down in front of a publishing house, uh, they wouldn't have touched that. It was it wasn't a finished product. Uh, it wasn't uh, refined enough, so to speak. Like it, it, the first book of the guide is probably my roughest as a writer because I was kind of finding my footing there. Um, so, is it? the best idea to make a public drafting process no but on the other hand uh, doing it that way doing it through a web serial not only uh, first allowed me to realize that yeah okay like my stuff is actually popular like it's one thing for uh, teachers even a writing program to tell you that yeah you could maybe make it as a professional it's another to you know make that jump and see that people are actually interested in reading your stuff and then later on uh Continuing uh, on in the series, I realized, yeah, I can legitimately make a living out of this. And at that point, I guess I made a transition to being a professional writer in a different sense than I was before. Like I'd done writing contracts before I started living full-time off the guide, uh, writing contracts, editing stuff mostly, uh, almost nothing that was uh, actual creative work. Um, but uh, I feel that the, the question, should you should you make a public draft, doesn't really address the reality that it was either a public draft or no draft or maybe i could have worked on that book on that book for another couple of years and then maybe it might have been picked up by a publishing house but that's always rolling the dice especially if it's a first book thank you you uh i i think this this sort of like behind the scenes look at where the how the guide was written and in your mindset on some of this is awesome stuff um but if you don't mind Maybe we could, uh, if we might uh, transition here to talking about the content of the guide a bit more. 
because um, sure. this is the the stuff that is uh, at least more visible to to us, the the fans mm-hmm. here. Um, so you mentioned uh, the Grey Pilgrim's perspective uh, a little bit ago, and uh, <laughs> the Grey Pilgrim is a a character that we on this podcast absolutely love to hate. Um, we've actually oh, I've received, heard, yeah. <laughs> perfect. We've received a, a bit of pushback here and there for uh, some of our maybe vitriolic statements about the the Great Pilgrim. Uh, we were both sort we of were in the... forced to make them, considering how frequently he's come up in the first book of the guide, oh, yeah, which we read. <laughs> coming up all the time, so we had to talk about him. Um, we we like we said, we love to talk about him, um, and so we're we're both pretty firmly in the we would see him hang camp, and uh, we are thrilled to death. We love that there's this complex and unintended gray character in the story that we can uh, look at from different perspectives, and everybody sort of has a different view on. Uh, there's you know he's not the only character like that in the guide, obviously, um, but he is. Uh, we, we, he's a complex, not villain, obviously, that is a, it's a pretty loaded term, but antagonist to Cat uh, uh, for a while. Um, and prior to him, our, the first real opponent, not counting the War College situation, uh, that we see for Cat is William, is the, the lone swordsman, um, who's a pretty rough guy. He's, you know, he's racist, ethno-nationalist, he's you know, leans a bit sexist compared to a lot of the characters in the guide, especially. Uh, so does the transition in the guide from William uh, to grayer foes to, to more complex, nuanced antagonists form a deliberate arc? Was it intentional, important for you for things to get muddier in where the lines are for, for our protagonists as the story goes on? Uh, I'd say when I wrote William... Um... I considered him something of a training wheels antagonist uh, narratively, but uh, also for me, because uh, early in the book, like uh, from Kat's perspective, she makes a decent argument as to why you, we should work within the Empire instead of going for straight on rebellion. Um, so William is the counter argument for that, it's the traditional Callowan rebel route. Um, he is, however, a product of an occupation that lasted for decades, so he can't be too traditional. Mm-hmm. And uh, more than that, uh, he can't be too right either. Like, he has to be right enough that you question, is is Catherine doing the correct thing? But he can't be too shiny, otherwise the reader might legitimately, at that point in the game, start rooting against Cat. And it's a little early in the series to for me to direct the reader and the seer question is, is Catherine doing more good than harm with the things she's pursuing? So, um, I guess lore-wise it uh, fit for William to be racist uh, against orcs specifically, because Kalo is very much a kingdom while uh, Price is an empire in the sense that Price is multiple ethnicities, there's a lot of compromise in the way it's ruled. Kalo was a fairly centralized kingdom uh, with uh, mostly people of the same ethnicity and the most major ethnicity that's not traditional Kaloan is a Deoraif, and they're basically an independent kingdom inside the kingdom, and they don't even get out all that much. So uh, as a vice, that was one of the things that I thought uh, fit best for William, but uh, from from the outset, that was the direction I wanted to do with the character. There's a reason uh, I called him the Lone Swordsman. in part because uh, he was the lone wolf archetype uh, at the beginning of the story, uh, his story certainly always uh, dealing out a little bit of the gritty justice. But I also uh, chose lone specifically because I um, wanted to evoke lone shooter on the hill, which is why it fed directly to him in summer home later, taking some pretty grisly measures against the occupation. So uh, in that sense, yeah, I I wanted William to. Uh, be less complicated an antagonist. By the time we get to the Grey Pilgrim, um, we start to question what we know about heroes and villains as presented by Catherine and Black. And uh, the Grey Pilgrim is, uh, I guess, a whetstone for that kind of thinking for the rest of the series. Because he's he's someone who tradition uh, typically tries to improve, uh, do the most good for the most people. But, you know, that can result in pretty bad consequences for a minority. Sure. Yeah, that that's that's great stuff. The 
the comparison uh, drawn between uh, Callow and Price there is is fantastic, and uh, you know we we spent a lot of time talking about specifically that in the uh, the sort of interlude chapter where you <laughs> pretty much directly juxtapose William and uh, and Eris and the the situation how they're viewing people who aren't exactly like them, and so yeah, that that's that's really cool to to see that drawn out in in full throughout the the early books here you know and then zoomed in on in that that chapter there that we just covered a few weeks ago but while we have this transition from a relatively clear training wheels protagonist to the gray pilgrim the grillgrim as we say here we end the story with what is well nuanced and informed from so many positions a very clear good versus evil, life versus death kind of battle. The ravening hordes of the undead led by one guy with big ideas and a really nice hell. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's the thing about that part of the series. By that point, uh, the moral conflict in the sixth and seventh book isn't really about uh, Catherine or good uh, versus the dead king, because that's that's not really a conte- uh, contest. By that point, he is literally in it for the annihilation of all life on Calernia. The, the moral conflict is, weirdly enough, the, the character that I ended up using to voice that is uh, the Mirror Knight, is uh, when you're uh, raising a coalition for against literally the end times, um, things start to slip like at some point the moral at which point uh, are the moral compromises that you're making uh stop being justifiable uh, you get uh heroes more and more saying that yeah we're we're going much too far with those compromises while you have cat in a most uh, more traditionally villainous mindset which is if you're in the face of annihilation there is literally no moral compromise that is unacceptable so i'd say uh, in the last book the the moral conflict isn't uh, outside, it's within the Grand Alliance, trying to balance the morality of what they're doing and the realities of juggling an, alli- an alliance with villains inside that, tri- let's call them uh, evil nations, which, you know, have some customs that are questionable at best. What's a little ritual sacrifice between friends? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, now that you pointed out, there were a few tensions in the Grand Alliance, looking mm-hmm. back on it. Hmm. Uh, I say book six is the one who's handling uh, uh, the one I feel like I handled the worst. Uh, First off, it should definitely have been two books instead of one, because the themes don't carry very well from the first half to the second half. And um, I'll say uh, the themes I wanted to carry for um, the Arsenal arc uh, did not land as thoroughly as I wanted to because a lot of the arc ended up being swallowed up by not only the action, but also the military planning, which was uh, starting the second part of the book early, more or less, which is something I should have been more careful about avoiding, in my opinion. When you say the sixth book, and I apologize if this comes off in any rude way, but when you say book six should have been two books, Mm -hmm. that's the current book six should have been because as i understand book seven was also intended to be book six originally yeah or do uh, i miss I mean, no 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 the basically uh i had the bones of uh, book six and book seven uh, as one very large book and uh we got maybe into the arsenal arc by the time i realized that uh it would be absolutely ridiculous to keep it together so I chopped it half and half, and I decided this is the good place to end, which uh, the end of book six, how it landed, that I'm happy with. Uh, I think it ended on the right note for the end of a book. Um, however, um, as a finished product, uh, basically all my favorite pieces of what used to be the, the big common book that became book six and seven, all my favorite parts were in what ended up book, being book seven. So I feel the, the book six suffered a little from that and also from uh, being cut off from the whole. So uh, uh, it was harder to make it a clear narrative with uh, solid themes throughout. On the other hand, just practically speaking, uh, welding books six and seven together, given their current size, would have been 
insane. It would have been a, a, a long book. Uh, just out of curiosity, I know that uh, you were pretty public about the fact that you were going into a book seven when that wasn't initially the plan. When you laid out your your bones at the very start, were you anticipating six books? Did it expand from a smaller number of books or shrink at any point at, from the very beginning? I mean, when I was 16, I thought it'd be a trilogy. Uh, uh, by the okay. time I got seriously to writing it, I was like, I can probably knock this out in five books. Okay. Uh, by the time I got to the fourth book, I was like, yeah, that's probably six books. And what do you know? By the time I got to the sixth book, it ended up being seven. But it's a, you know, it's a number I can live with. Now you've got seven books, one of which is published twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that that's great, and uh, you know, I'm glad that you were able to recognize the uh the size of your task ahead of you and uh expand the number of books as you were going if this had been a trilogy these would be some heavy books so uh <laughs> i mean in all fairness by the time when i thought it was going to be a trilogy my experience as a writer was minor let's put it that way like sure I, but uh yeah no it's i mean it's it's the expectation when you write fantasy isn't it you're gonna go for a trilogy because that's what everybody does fair enough yeah a trilogy is a, a classic for a reason i guess uh but even traditionally published trilogies so often fall apart not to compare uh the guide and perhaps the most important fantasy novel of the past 100 150 years but i know the inheritance trilogy by christopher paulini aragon was four books and the Intersection between sci-fi fantasy, Locked Tomb series is on the verge of getting, or Locked Tomb trilogy is on the verge of its fourth and final book. Trilogies are very much the goal to start with, but you don't need to end there. You're fine. <laughs> no, I'm amused to see, uh, hear you say that about the Inheritance trilogy because uh, I have opinions that I don't think they're compatible. Oh, like, very no, much... I assure you they are compatible. <laughs> right. I enjoyed the first two books, but uh, it it started slipping later on. I think. I I think there. Are, it sounds like maybe three people in this call right now who finished the uh, cycle out of a sense of obligation. Maybe. I, I didn't even finish the entire. Thing. Oh, okay. I stopped, on Fair the, I, I stopped on the third book and I uh, read stuff about what was happening inside because I couldn't bring myself to go on the fourth. Very fair, very fair. <laughs> so if you ever feel the urge to see what you're missing, we'd be happy to do a podcast. Podcast guys who talk erratic errata and erratic errata talking Christopher Polini. It'd be quite a title, but we could go through the books. A no time at all. <laughs> uh, it'd, be, it'd be a quick one compared to, to this uh, endeavor we have undertaken, for sure. Yeah, uh, I guess you you guys really did not pick the the shortest series out there, did you? No, and uh, but don't worry, this is our first podcast, so we know what we're doing. <laughs> of course, <laughs> it's your first big published work, so we'll do our first podcast, and that way we can just put uh, our teeth against each other. Uh, checks out, checks out. <laughs> but uh, so in uh, in in the guide, you you've had this massive setting you know you've got this world with nations and peoples and uh, troubles and magic and everything going on uh there's a lot that you are the readers are learning about by bit and bit by bit throughout the entire thing you're, you know you're learning new things about the setting uh in the final chapters it feels like and that that's awesome and it obviously even in seven books as it ended up being um there's not space to address every detail in every piece of the world and you know nor should you necessarily want to you know it's a a focused story um but we everybody's got their curiosities about uh, certain things um <laughs> my i know my my co-host and i are very interested in the chain of hunger uh because well one of us is very interested in Cordelia, uh, and uh, yeah, I think I noticed that from the the Discord nickname. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and and her. I people... don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah, the uh, the episode on with uh, Cordelia's perspective that that interlude was uh, an interesting one to say the least. Um, but uh, is there anything? that you wish you had been able to more deeply dive into or that you plan to provide more detail on or first details on something, a new aspect of the setting you didn't get into here in the, 
um, the seven books that are published. Is there anything you're looking to get into as you start publishing the volumes on Yonder? Um, all right. Uh, there are two wolves inside of me. There, There is the wolf that says, oh, you could have gotten so much deeper in how Prokar actually works. Some parts of it people barely know about. And there's the other wolf that says, no, you should you should have put less Prokar in, in there. People already know significantly way too much about how that political system works. To an extent, that's maybe not necessary to properly understanding the text either. So it's... Uh, it's a back and forth in there. Like, uh, obviously, I, I like the setting, I like the characters, so my instinct is always to put more in it. But uh, I guess the the thing I learned uh, going on in the books and maybe from writing the series spirit is, um, at some point, you have to ask yourself, uh, putting this like this is a cool, this is a cool chapter, it's cool information. I like sharing the, the world building, but is it does it help the text? Does it advance the text? Does it contribute? Or is it just something I wanted to put in there? Um, so yeah, it's uh, look. Uh, obviously, I'm going to reform some parts of uh, Prokar, uh, how it works in the, the yonder version. Uh, but a big part of that is that uh, overall there might be more names, but the important names. I basically I, I picked a Prokar cast of like. Uh, limited number of people that the reader is going to know those names, recognize those names, are going to be the players that they're going to pay attention to. Like, take um, uh, a Song of Ice and Fire, for example. Like, there are thousands of names in Martin's books, but mm-hmm. uh, the important ones we remember, that's more the kind of thing I'm aiming to achieve. I thank you, and right. deeply respect your answer, because I recognize it's a wise and rational answer. But I also yeah. want to know everything there is to know about this world. Yeah. We all do. If everyone listening wants to know everything about the world, or they wouldn't be listening to a podcast about a book they read once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. What I can tell you about the chain of hunger is that uh, basically early on when I was modeling all the nations is um, all right. What the typical goblin that you see in fantasy is basically cannon fodder for uh, PC the PCs in your adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the way that uh, when I uh, took on Price as world building, my question was, how do you make Mordor work as a political system? Why does it exist like that? The chain of hunger was something like. Uh, the goblins that you see in RPGs that are almost considered more creatures and folk, when they are obviously capable of doing things like mining and making armor, how do you create a race like that and make it not like deeply genocidal and racist for people mm-hmm. to be fighting against them? And my answer to that was a chain of hunger, where they are there's they are sentient the rattlings. It's just there's a fundamental hunger in them that makes it impossible to negotiate in a meaningful way with them. So it's eternal war for you. And from what we've seen of them, because uh, thank you, that's fantastic. But there's a huge danger I think we can appreciate in any fundamentally destructive, fundamentally, if I may, verminous race or species or people because those claims have been made so many times in so many places so many terrible ways in the real world and the chain of hunger maybe certainly due to being carefully approached and also maybe due to being off screen a lot too but there's never any vibe of oh look we've got fantasy if i may say the awful word untermenschen no they're rattlings and they fascinate but don't horrify i will say it's definitely not an accident that i made them non-human because yeah that is there's no way to execute that well when it's pattern on actual people there's a reason also that there is no visible uh inspiration for any real world culture equivalent as i pattern most nations on uh, in the setting which is if i may express here what i have on the podcast before really admirable overall in that in a world where they it, where there is good and evil and good nations and good peoples and bad or evil pardon that's the point i'm making evil nations and evil peoples you don't have oh these are the bad people who are just bad and these are good people who are you know by birth superior the world 
even from Catherine's original perspective, is much more nuanced. We see an orc in the first chapter, in the pit scene, not being a monster, but being a person at the pit. Because it's just, these are people, even if they're scary people. And orcs are scary. Yeah. Shoot too many rows of te- sorry, two rows of teeth. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, I did, I I didn't want to put leather pants on the orcs either. Like, uh, I want I wanted to show that they're they're legitimately a culture and people. But on the other hand, like they also eat people. I'm not gonna pretend that's not a <laughs> a part of what they do. I mean, they are very much a warrior culture to an extent that can easily be exploited by unscrupulous leaders and has been to often the detriment of their their neighbors. Though, you know, the the very ethnicity, uh, well, not necessarily ethnicity, but the very culture Catherine comes from. The detriment of their neighbors and themselves. They're yeah. oh, they're hollowed out. There's no warlord. There hasn't been. Oh, but that's. And that uh, I mean, I. I don't. I'm not sure if I actually ever put that in, uh, explicitly in the test, but that's that's very much not an accident. As in, the Empire has very carefully uh, across basically all the tyrants intervened to keep the orcs from unifying. There are internal pressures that would have made that very difficult in the first place. But nobody who has the tower wants united orcs to the north. You say that, and that's amazing and great. But I'm shocked that there wasn't a dread emperor accidental who let things slip through because the cast of dread tyrants is we only see one in the entire text in present time and yet the well i was about to say hold on now one with one who currently has the name yeah but the cast of tyrants is fantastic and since i said the word tyrant i just need to note also i love the tyrant Yeah, I, I, I also gleaned that uh, from the nickname. I, I, again, don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the, the thing about, um, like, you make a fair point that some of the emperors have, uh, empresses have been highly incompetent over the years. But the thing about Pais um, is that it's a so highly sophisticated crab bucket. So it doesn't really matter who's in charge is competent because, sure, the, the empire uh, erupts into civil war. One of their first steps is, all right, are the two, three high seats close to the border with the orcs uh, in a good position? First thing you do is you pay the orcs to f*** them up. And they're going to want to go raiding. They go raiding anyways. So uh, in a sense, uh, the natural answer to that from the high seats that are close to the orcs is you pay other orcs to fight those orcs. So even in times of civil war, uh, the clans are more tool than player. And they don't really have the industrial base to ever get out of that trap, because their best weapons come from trade with Pais. So if they fight for the High Lords, they get better weapons, they maybe get winning, but they also get dependent, and they don't really have an easy economic way, either resource-wise or population-wise or land-wise, to get out of that uh, resource trap. Wait, I never ask, am I actually allowed to curse on this? Uh allowed to sure we sure. may we may edit out like don't don't feel like you need to censor yourself uh All right. like we're not concerned about it but we're we've so far avoided an explicit rating for podcasts so we may you know <laughs> we yeah, may try to hold it up. <laughs> but that's the national slash racial species dynamic that has been well done that avoids in our eyes, at least, the dangers of, oh, I'm going to make different groups of people and different kinds of people with different characteristics. It, it's a valuable thing in writing. I, and I really think valuable for whatever the purpose of art is, which is difficult, but for the ways art teaches and helps us grapple with ideas, valuable good stuff, and it just goes badly in fantasy a lot and hasn't here. But that's race. One thing I really noted, especially as a gay man, is that you're one of the fantasy writers who chose to make a fantasy world with most places, at least that are relevant to us, having gender norms, norms of sexuality, love relationships, that very widely mirror the most progressive places in the real world today, 
we see Catherine's bisexuality really only addressed when people are concerned about who exactly she's looking at, which turns out to be everyone, everyone with a pulse. <laughs> yeah. uh, the There are trans characters, some of whom many... There are trans characters whom many of the readers kind of didn't even notice were noted to be trans because there's a subtle acknowledgement, but nobody fixates on that. Women do and have held authority in very many places. Very Actually, I was going to make the uh, Everdark the exception there, but no, actually, gender is gone for everyone except I'm pretty sure the goddesses, yeah, based okay. on that word. Yeah. Their mindsets haven't really changed since Ascension, so they kept the gender, yeah? Yeah, which, it's very cool that gender and sexuality are comfortable. Uh, and this, is a, this has to be a deliberate choice. You don't come from a world that sees any sort of universal view that women are people, that queer people are allowed. And you didn't have to make that choice. You put a lot of nasty things in your world why have this be a whole lot nicer than at the very least my united states of america yeah uh one of the one of the drives for uh how i ended up doing the the guide was a discussion i had with uh, two friends on the internet maybe a year or two before uh, both are women uh i'm not sure i should speak about their sexuality without their permission but they're not traditionally in that sense, uh, let's go with that. And uh, both of them, like, uh, they were discussing uh, fantasy books that I'd almost never heard of, and uh, I was curious why they they went off the beaten path so much. And what they told me is, uh, the the traditional, you know, young guy male character, they was someone they had a difficulty identifying with, and it was, you know, the it was the golden standard, so to speak, with what you found everywhere. So one of the things. Uh, I got from that discussion was uh, when I wrote my own book, I wanted to avoid doing that. And uh, it fit with uh, also um, the very earliest draft of the guide was called Black and White. And uh, Black was very much more the main character, but uh, the person who which he gave uh, the exposition that... Uh, helped understand the setting was uh, basically a new recruit for the side of evil called priestess which was i guess proto catherine at the very barest bones and i realized it made for much more interesting story for uh, catherine to actually be the main character entirely and uh, discover herself uh, how the empire work and how she wanted to change it as for um uh, let's say uh, sexuality stuff like uh, obviously like <laughs> My personal values are a factor in there. And uh, about uh, the trans stuff being subtle, I tend to be of the school of thought that uh, if you make a big point out of it, then uh, the presence of that LGBTQ character tends to... Uh, it becomes about the point of them being of that uh, orientation, of that sexuality, or whatever the details of it. So if you simply treat it as something entirely normal and established, which in my opinion it is, regardless of whether it's a fantasy setting or real life. Uh, it works better, in a sense. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily better representation mm -hmm. or anything, but uh, I think it helps establish that um, this is how it is in the setting. There's nothing unusual about this. Just keep walking. It's, it's there. And better representation, quote-unquote, as you say, there are it's good to include representation of things, but I suspect I would find it much less palatable if somebody from outside a minority community tried to produce the representation for the community. Oh yeah, Practical Guide? Yeah, it's about being a bisexual teenage girl. Ooh. You know, I, I really don't think I'm qualified to write that story, which is why I, one of the reasons I much prefer like it's being part of the story. But a very well done part. Yeah. So you have my thanks. Uh, well, my pleasure. It's always, I guess it's gratifying to hear that it landed more or less as I wanted it to land.
because it's, I guess, it's always tricky navigating this kind of thing. Speaking of things that are tricky to navigate, and speaking of bisexual teenage girls, uh, <laughs> Catherine is a character who, among many other qualities, she is very many things, but she is often defined by, perhaps recognized as, and remembered in the community for being what the hip Gen Zers out there call, if I may, horny on main. You're writing a story about a young woman, a teenage child, initially, and you are not a teenage young woman. I will confirm. And she has a lot of she has a lot of relationships, a lot of there's a lot. It's a long book or a long series. And it feels to me like it could be very dangerous. It could come off as some type of male fantasy, male gaze. It it seems like a pitfall that could have been easy to fall into. And at no point did I or anyone I've spoken to about the story find it to be like that. Did you have to deliberately, or did you maybe not have to, but did you deliberately work to, I don't know, not fetishize Catherine's experiences or totemize or tokenize or any other fun graduate school word? Uh, I'll say for it off, first off that um, I know it's the meme inside of fandom that uh, Catherine is, has such uh, an enormous wandering eye. I think it's been exaggerated, like it's kind of a self-feeding loop as it often is in fandoms. Uh, I think later on in the books, whenever Catherine uh, gave uh, an description of anyone who which wasn't just a basic description people took it as her being into the individual which i don't think is a really fair description it's also that she gets more um uh, she gets better at uh, noticing details as the, uh, the series goes on mm-hmm. but uh as for the characterization attempts um I guess uh, I, I I feel comfortable enough saying that uh, as a teenager, uh, some of my closest friends were bisexual women. So sexuality-wise, I kind of based it on what I had personally encountered, which uh, made it easier not to get cartoonish in one way or another, I suppose. Uh, as uh, steps I took to avoid it, uh, I mean, it was a conscious, conscious decision to never write smut inside the guide when I'm capable of writing smut. And uh, I guess that that's in part to avoid getting uh, too fetishistic. But I also had, uh, from the beginning in my mind, very clear ideas about what Catherine did and did not find attractive. So that made it easier to just, you know, never do a stupid uh, hookup plot just for it. Especially when, uh, from the books to the end of the series, she's a pretty driven person who doesn't necessarily have a lot of personal free time. Sorry, I'm just scanning through. What is it? Uh, however, what point, what million words of story to think about her relationships? And yeah, the only hookup plot that comes to mind is not a stupid one, but rather the Kingfisher Prince, which is the correct choice in all situations. Yeah, that ended up being significantly more popular with the fandom than I thought it would be. But uh... everybody, wrote... everybody in the yeah. fandom was just envious of Cat. I think. Yes. <laughs> You wrote the seven most famous words in the guide. When someone has the thing they do with their hips, you, the fandom will take over. I'm sorry. It's no longer your work. <laughs> that thing you sense, yeah. Uh, however, you say you have a very strong idea, had a very strong idea. Tense is weird because I, it happened before, but it's still true now. Of what Catherine finds attractive, and it turns out to be normal stuff like raining fiery death on your opponents from the sky, which, in all honesty, truly is a very attractive thing. And that's the turning point, at least in the first published web serial version. That's the turning point for her relationship with Killian, which may be the first time I've said the name properly on the podcast. (laughs) Some characters are defined by being really attractive from the start. The Empress heiress being attractive is part of their importance in the story and in the story which is great and good but the first meeting with Catherine's first major love interest she's glossed over entirely it's only after the fiery doom that she becomes much of a person in Catherine's eyes um all right here's the thing uh 
you go early rat company, Catherine is going to notice several times that uh, rat face is attractive because uh, rat face is a really good looking guy. That's that's one of the things. Uh, yes. But rat face is from then on never seriously considered as a potential of interest because Catherine thinks um, rat face is attractive, but uh, in that moment with the fiery doom, she is attracted to Killian, which is a small difference. But she thinks Ratface is good-looking. She was attracted uh, physically and romantically uh, to Killian in that moment, which is why Killian ends up being uh, someone she dates later on. And that's a really cool and humanly honest juxtaposition. Because you say you elected not to write smut. You did not write smut. But you had the setup for possibly the biggest possible setup in the guide for a smutty scene when... In early Rat Company, between games, Catherine encounters Ratface in the early hours of the morning. He's got rivulets of water running down his blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had fun with that. I-, I wanted it to be a straight-up romance novel and, you know, show how Catherine would react in a situation like that, which is mostly staring. And you <laughs> pivoted away from anything coming from that perfectly. Mm-hmm. It... Which goes to show maybe the fandom does uh, take things a little far. But that's what fandom is for. (laughs) Maybe. A little bit, a lot of bit. Yeah, Yeah, somewhere in there. Uh, I mean, when you talk a little bit about something, you make details stand out. In a way, they wouldn't necessarily if it was your first reading of the text. Oh, so you are a longtime fan of the podcast, then? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, I, I guess it's the same in any fandom, and I'm as guilty as that sin as anybody. Well, there is only one sin. <laughs> uh, wow. Well, no one has ever you. quoted my own work so much as me. I kind of dig it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of what we're all about. So that, that's great. Um, so, you know, we talking about the direction Cat's romance could have gone, you know, there's the hints at Raph face before pivoting completely away from that goofball. Um, but so more than in a lot of other series, there's different directions that the guide seems it could have gone early on, especially um, that it doesn't necessarily follow through on and not to its detriment, but because it, you know, takes a different path. It has a, a different focus. Um, we early on, we see cat practicing, a little bit of auto necromancy. She sort of pieces herself together with dark magic, and that is cool and a great scene. And a, a lot of thought is devoted to that on Cat's end, but it's not somewhere that it's not something that necessarily ties directly into where she ends up. You know, as as the warden, it's she's not a necromancer in her prime. You know, that's not her main thing. Um, we get some hints at uh, triumphant uh, here and there that I think some people, perhaps many people, myself included, uh, felt that that was hinting at the final boss, the the main antagonist being a a triumphant return. Um, And that doesn't go anywhere, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got the gnomes. There's uh, what's going, is something going to come from them? Is, are there, is there going to be an apocalyptic number of demon eggs happening all at once? Um, You know, none of these become the big thing. Uh, Were these threads, uh, if they were intentionally laid to be misleading, misleading is a really harsh word, but uh, you know, if not misleading, then at least to provide some possible avenues to not make where the, where the actual story ends up going uh, just obvious from the, from the get go. Um, Were they threads that were difficult to cut? Were they things that you were maybe going to pursue more and then ended up didn't? Uh, Were they something that you, hoped would and then couldn't find a way or didn't want to find a way uh or were they just there and you were happy with where they were all along and they were intentionally uh left at the level they were the threat level that they were the hint that they might become something more um all right going up from the top uh catherine with uh otonic romancy that's a that's a good way to put it um uh i can see all all the power sets that catherine has had through the books which is quite a few. Um, I never really considered them as uh, 
Catherine uh, needing to settle for a final form. Uh, as in, Catherine early on is the squire because her mindset is still very much that of a brawler. Um, she is capable of things like auto necromancing herself because um, already she has the this mindset that she is willing to sacrifice parts of herself to get an objective. Uh, at every point in the story, I'd say more or less, uh, what the, the powers that Catherine has represent uh, where she is at an overall journey. Uh, later on in the Fey, was, Catherine was technically at uh, the peak of the power she was able to throw, but she was also very much stuck in a rut mindset. As in, uh, early on in the books, Catherine is defined by not only the way she's capable of hurting herself to get a victory, but uh, also by um, he uh, specializes in finding a third way, finding an alternative, making the deal. Uh, when she reaches that height of power, which is uh, happens simultaneously with her getting the full uh, power of Fey, uh, of the Winter Court, more rather, um, Catherine kind of stops looking for for that angle. Like, yeah, she tries gambits, yeah, she does different things, but uh, she's stuck in a rut, as in she's had the power she's uh, wanted for so long. She's now effectively Queen of Callow, but she's not sure how to use it in the same way that she's not quite sure how to use the power of the Winter Court, which I try to display very clearly during the Battle of the Camps, while Aqua is given the exact same skill set. She wipes the floor with the opposition, but she does also fall prey to traditional villainy downfall, which is winning too much against the wrong people. So um, I wouldn't say it's uh, cut threads, the, the power sets that Catherine has. It's a reflection of where she is at in her story. Uh, essentially, Catherine at the moment where she uh, stops trying to clean up her leg wound is uh, at a point where she recognizes where she's at, what she's had to pay to get there. And you'll notice she becomes significantly better at dealing with people, even if she still has quite a bit of uh, power to throw around. Um, all right, the triumphant thing, which is not the first time I'm hearing, um, I legitimately did not anticipate that uh, people would take that as a call in for triumphant maybe showing up in the future. Uh, I saw it more as a way to introduce that uh, Prezi mythology is woven uh, with the uh, with all tyrants because it's the closest thing they have to gods. Uh, as in, people have direct relationship with the gods below. You don't really have the equivalent of, of priests and angels as much as you would uh, with uh, the heavens. So um, that's something I ended up maybe making clearer in uh, the Yonder version, uh, which, you know, allowed me, as I mentioned earlier, to redo some of the Prezi world building and do it earlier. Uh, the gnomes were uh, what I thought at the time was a clever way to point out, well, this is one of the reasons the technology of the setting doesn't really advance. And uh, I never really saw them as a Potential antagonists, if anything, they were brought up by Black early in the series as a way to hammer point, uh, hammer home the point that ultimately Calernia feels like this enormous field full of things, but it's a backwater in the greater scheme of things. And uh, the gnomes being this big thing that's not in any way touchable were meant to, you know, something that reinforces that impression. Um, the demon eggs, I guess, I never saw so much as an uh, as an antagonist as in uh, part of the setting, as in uh, you know, there's been wars uh, so long between Prais and Kalo that obviously there's going to be consequences for the land, and that is sometimes uh, you dig a little too deep and uh, you let out a demon that eats your entire family and is a hero to be put down. That happens. It's uh, I I guess I didn't really go into deep for that, but uh, it was semi meant as a way to show that there there's a reason that people like heroes and heroes are around. There are legitimate threats for these people to deal with, and I guess it's also a reminder that uh, you know Black cleaned up his his side of the the chessboard a bit, but they are the people throwing around like damage to reality to, for lowborn military victories, lowbrow rather. Um, I'd say the the big uh, element that never bore is uh, you might remember that early in the books, um, uh, Nauk has a, a one-off line about um, his grandmother having uh, eaten uh, elf during the Absolutely. conquest. Absolutely. 
Yep. All right. That's uh, that's uh, a remainder of the very very first draft, which had instead of uh, the Fey invasion, uh, diplomatic incidents with the elves and an invasion of the golden uh, the golden plume instead, which uh, is uh, one of the people I discussed a series with and uh, helped me realize that it was ne- necessarily where I wanted to go with the the series because uh, originally. It was going to be um, the elves were also quite different to what they ended up being. Like uh, most of the same teams were the same, but they were not uh, almost unkillable forces of nature the way they happen in the series. And um, basically, the invasion of the Golden Bloom was going to prove to be the inciting incident for uh, the Crusade uh, that followed later. Obviously, uh, there were there were several differences, and I liked better. Uh, where the, for the themes and the character work uh, going with uh, Aqua's Fortress of Doom and uh, what it meant for uh, the fracturing of the partnership between uh, Black and the Empress. That's very interesting that uh, an early draft yeah, had the, the elves. They were, they're a part of the world that I really like how they show up in the guide as, uh, you know, where they show up now and again and it's always a big deal that they're there and I would never have guessed that there was a chance that we could have had <laughs> an elf invasion. That sounds uh, that sounds pretty rough. Yeah, it was the um, uh, the, the I guess in in the first book, the, the first angle I took with the series was I was going very heavy on deconstruction before I I guess I grew into the story a bit and decided to go a little deeper than that, which is why there are some. Uh, elements in the first book that are a little simple because I was basically working off the evil overlord list in, in reverse, as in sure. making a competent evil overlord, which was one of the things I wanted to do with Black in the first place. So um, I guess one of the reasons uh, the elves were an invasion target was I wanted to uh, basically dismantle the concept of uh, what an elven society that lives in the woods and never makes weapons out of uh, uh, anything that's uh, that's steel uh, maintains the same level of technology is culturally stagnant what that would actually be when faced with an evil empire uh, basically i wanted to do um, uh, the ends coming to isengard with a competent military force depending isengard uh, so yeah obviously that's uh, not what i ended up going with uh, I, and i think um it was an interesting deconstruction, but uh, the character work tends to be what carries the guides, and the character worked worked much better with the final version I ended up going for. It really, it's such a wild thing to hear about the versions that would have been, could have been, originally were intended to have been, because while everyone listening should, of course, continue to support the guide and access it in all possible forms, etc., etc., the guide as originally written the guide as currently being published is a fantastic and complete work uh this may surprise some of the listenership but i'm actually quite fond of it uh i might do a podcast on it but that other things could have been and written by you so with all the same style and grace and blah 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 that would have been now i want to read that i just don't want to give up what i have right exactly <laughs> and I'm sure it's for the best where we are, but more. I want more, which is what Yonder's for, I realize. Yeah, I guess to some extent, yeah. I, I mean, it's going to be, it's not going to be proto version of the guide, but proto version of the guide had weaknesses of its own. So I endorse the, the revisions for sure. I should hope so. Otherwise, can we help you? <laughs> <laughs> And unfortunately, that is all the time we have for this week. Join us next week for the second part of the interview, where we discuss questions such as... That question you really, really want to know the answer to. One terrifying secret. And BBC's Sherlock? Wade in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Royal Guard by Nikki P. 
outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Phantom by Lemon Music Studio. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Maybe not this time, because we had the author here. But email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash pgtee. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access all of our patron-exclusive tangents. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, our patron and inspiration, the hopeful romantic, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, more interviews?